Lord, I need you every moment. Without your spirit, I am blessed. I cannot do a thing without you. But with your power, I can do. Oh, oh your will, Lord, with you, I know that I can move the mountains. And walk upon the raging seas of my life Lord, with you I know I'm marching on a victory But I've got to keep my eyes on you Lord, I do need Lord, I do need Lord, I do need you Tried to do things on my own But soon I learned a simple lesson That I'm so very weak and you're so strong Lord, with you I know I can build the mountains And walk upon the raging seas of my life Lord, with you I know Marching on a victory But I've got to keep my eyes on you Lord, I do need Lord, I do need Lord, I do need you Every moment of every minute Of every hour of every day Every moment of every minute of every day, every moment, of every minute, of every hour, of every day, every moment, of every minute, of every hour, of every day. Lord, I do need, Lord, I do need, Lord, I do need you. Blessed Savior, say the words that matter most. Well done, good and faithful servant. And with his strength, I know that I will hear those words. Lord, with you, I know I can move the mountains, walk upon the raging seas. Of my life, Lord, with you I know, marching on a victory. But I've got to keep my eyes on you, Lord. I do need, Lord. I do need, Lord. I do need you, Lord. I do need you.
All right, uh, good evening to all of you. Could you turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 15, verse 14? Romans chapter 15, verse 14. And uh, I'd like to read you something. Uh, somebody sent me today, I think Jeannie, you sent it to, uh, sent it to me today. And <laughs> I just started laughing when I read it. I was like, poor Chuck Swindoll's going through something what I'm going through. <laughs> I just started laughing. I was like, that's why you sent it, right? I was like, boy, this sounds like, Chuck, you're doing, you're going through a little bit of trouble? Listen to what Chuck Swindoll wrote today, June 29, 2010. It's called Deep Grief. And his main passage was 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 11 through 13, which I'll read to you very briefly. It says in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, Now these things happened to them, the Israelites, as an example for us, the church-age believers, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages have come. Therefore, let him, uh, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. And then he says, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man, and God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted, tested beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that, so that you'll be able to endure it. Now listen to what Chuck says. It's called deep grief. He says, The past couple of weeks... <laughs> have been the toughest of, some of the toughest of my life. My emotions have spanned the spectrum, shock, sorrow, horror, intense anger, disillusionment, disappointment, and utter bewilderment. I have prayed without much benefit. I have read the scriptures from the Psalms and Proverbs to the words of Jesus and various sections of the letters of, from Paul, Peter, James, without much peace. I feel like Job who admitted, if I speak, my pain is not lessened, and if I hold back, what has left me? He has exhausted me. My spirit is broken. That's Job 16, verses 6 and 7, and 17, 1. It occurred to me, he says, around 4.20 this morning. He likes to stay up late, too, in the morning. Get up, that, perhaps, uh, that perhaps the late great Spurgeon, who, by the way, uh, Spurgeon had great fits of depression in his ministry. And, and if you're in the ministry for any period of time, you'll know why. It has occurred to me, he said around 4.20 this morning, that perhaps the late great Spurgeon might have understood my grief better than any other when he wrote over a century ago in his lectures to my students. These were other pastors he wrote to. In a chapter entitled, The Minister's Fainting Fists. Now, Spurgeon was one of the greatest pastors of the 18, in the 1800s. He was a legend. He still have, we still have his writings today. Now, listen to what uh, he says. It says it's called, so this is Swindoll's quoting from Spurgeon's uh, uh, a chapter in his book, Lectures to My Students. The chapter is called The Minister's, or we could say today, The Pastor's Fading Fits. He says, who can bear the weight of souls without sometimes sinking to the dust? To see the hopeful turn aside, the godly grow cold, professors and pastors abusing their privileges, and sinners waxing more bold in sin... Are not these sights enough to crush us to the earth? The lesson of wisdom is, be not dismayed, dismayed by soul trouble. Count it no strange thing, but a part of ordinary ministerial experience. Live by the day, by the hour. Be not surprised when men fail you. It's a failing world. Be content to be nothing, for that is what you are. End of uh, the quote from Spurgeon. And then Swindoll goes on to say, No longer should we be saying that perilous times will come, they have arrived, fellow pilgrim. They are now, and we must face them head on, doing whatever is necessary to stand firm. As Carl Henry wrote so eloquently, in twilight of a great civilization, we may even now live in the half-generation before all hell breaks loose. 
And if its fury is contained, we will be remembered. If we are remembered at all, as those who use their hands and hearts and minds and very bodies to plug the dikes against impending doom. The secret of standing in treacherous times is being willing to take heed lest we also fail and we also fall. So that was the end of uh, Swindoll's article. And, and I would have to say the past couple of weeks have been the hardest of my, one of the hardest of my life too as well. And I tell you what, you know, when you, and this is for guys who might be listening on the internet, let's get a little insight into pa- being a pastor. If you think you really had the gift, you better really love, love the word of God and love to serve God's people because uh, it is a lot of times a lot of disappointments. The very people that you, a lot of times you minister to, they many times abandon you and, and you know, at the slightest drop of a hat, they're gone. Of course, that's the kingdom of darkness working. And then you wonder where all your, all your people who were, you know, who were with you, and now they're gone. <laughs> and you feel abandoned many times. And Paul, that happened to Paul at the end of his ministry. He said only Luke was with him at the end. And that's one of the hardest things is when you've been a, a dear, a close friend to somebody, and, uh, and then they turn against you, or they, they, they no longer want to speak to you, or they drift away from you. And that's a really hard thing to face. And, uh, you know, I know guys with, who are... Um, and that's just a hard thing to deal with. And you just have to put your head down and just keep going on and teach the Word of God and, and let God deal with the situation. But it's difficult. And a lot of guys, a lot of people want, you know, a lot of people want pastors to be these, you know, rocks like they never have any emotion or they, they never have any problems. Well, I, I'd be really suspicious of a guy who is always, you know, quote-unquote, like a rock. You know, Paul, read his epistles. He wept. He wept in front of his other pastors in Acts chapter 20. He wept in Philippians 3. He, 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 Jesus wept. We got now... <laughs> Jody has a thing in it. It says Jesus wept outside. It's pretty funny. So, you know, it doesn't mean you're, you're not tough because you weep or you show emotion or you express disappointment. You know, that's... You know, we, we, you know it's all, you're only human. Pastors are only human. And uh, we go through trials and tribulations. But the biggest thing is when you go do, you know, when you when you minister to people and you think they're your friends, and then all of a sudden it's like, now I know, you know, I remember when uh, when Bob, when I go to Dane, Bob McLaughlin, I remember, I'll never forget that the day that I that he had the ordination ceremony, and he was like looking at me, you sure you want to do this? And I was like, because he was going through a lot of trouble at the time. And uh, I just remember saying, you know, if I don't do it, God's going to discipline me. I have no other choice but to do it. Not, not in the sense that I... I, I willingly wanted to do it. It's what I wanted to do, and I knew there was going to be trouble. But, uh, you know, I'd rather be in the fight than sitting on the sidelines, you know. And so, of course, I, I said, yeah, I want to do it. Of course I do. I just, I feel, I, I'm compelled to do it. So, you know, being in the ministry is not all what it's cracked up to be. People say, oh, you know, they, they look at the, the guy, and they look like a, look at a swin doll, or they look at, I'll never forget, uh, George Meisinger told me. And, um, George Meisinger was sat, sat under Bob Thien's ministry, you know, the professor of, uh, the, 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 the uh, president of uh, Schaefer Theological Seminary that visited us. And he stayed with me for a week. And I'll never forget, he was like, you know, we we're talking about Bob Thien because he, he studied under Thien in the 60s and he was ordained there. And um, he was uh, in Bob's uh, house or where his office was or whatever. And I guess some guy in the, in the ministry was beating up his wife. And Bob Thien, you know, came on the phone and, and talked to this guy and just basically bawled him out. Say you know, hit his wife, he, and and then he hung up the phone, and Theme just looked at uh, George, Dr. Meisinger, and he looked at him with tears in his eyes. He says, you know, being in the ministry, being a pastor, is not all what it's cracked up to be. 
And I'll tell you, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not crying out here. I'm just trying to give you insight. You know, I'm, I'm just telling you what it is. Is a lot of disappointment and a lot, a lot of disappointment. And when you get some people who are positive, and you, you know, you get, you, know, you, you just cling to those, those instances. You know, you cling to the people who are still positive and the people, you know, who are into it. And there are other people they just drift away and. You know, you wonder, you know, what, wonder what happened to that friend of mine I used to have, and you never hear from him anymore, you know. It's pretty disappointing, but... And the people that used to come to church all the time, and they don't come anymore. It's like, what happened, you know? And it's like, if you were standing here, you'd be feeling pretty lousy, too. You'd be saying, ah, geez, you know, what the heck happened there, you know? And you pray, and you pray, and you pray, just like what Swindoll said. You pray, and you pray, and you pray, and it just seems to be of no avail. It's almost like, no matter what I pray, it's just not happening. And just that sometimes that's part of God's plan. And that's part, you know, part of growing up spiritually is dealing with disappointment. And like Swindoll said, people are going to disappoint you. Everybody has a sin nature. And, um, you know, you just, if you're in the ministry, you're going to serve. Hey, even if you're not a pastor and you're going to serve in this ministry, there's a lot of disappointment, you know, uh, even not being a pastor. When you serve in the ministry, there's a lot, there's going to be disappointment. And, you know, you just can't sit there and, you know, and roll over and die and not... To fulfill your responsibilities to the Lord and just not show up anymore. It's like, well, you know, that's that's being a quitter and that's not persevering. So, you know, it's just it's very important that we, you know, we learn we we, we learn to persevere and you know just keep your head down and just keep plugging away and and see what God does. And uh, you know, there's good times and there's bad times, but sometimes it's like, like He said, you know, you wonder you're like in this valley and you're just like, is there anybody? You know, is there any way out of this mess? And, of course, with God, there's always a way out. But, all right, uh, enough of that. I just wanted to read that to you and give you a little insight. But uh, if you could, uh, you should be at Romans 15, 14. Let's take that moment of silent prayer to prepare ourselves to hear the teaching of the Word of God. And that means applying First John 1, 9 if necessary and then bringing our thoughts, thoughts into obedience to the Spirit to maintain that fellowship. Remember what First Peter 5, 7, cast all your anxieties upon the Lord because He cares for you. So if there's anything that's bothering Bothering you, disturbing or distracting to you at this time, uh, apply that particular passage, and that's one of my favorite passages. So with uh, that in mind, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that we can study your word. Thank you for giving us everything that we need to have fellowship with you, your Son, and the Holy Spirit. We thank you for the, the bodies you've given us, the souls you've given us, the mental capacity, the human spirit, the eternal life that you've given us, the gift of the Holy Spirit as our true teacher and mentor and the completed canon of Scripture. We thank you for through the Scriptures and the Spirit revealing yourself and your ways to us, who and what you are, your Son and the Spirit, and what you've done for us through them in the past, and doing for us now, will do for us in the future, and even what you did for us before anything was ever created, and electing and predestinating us to be conformed to the image of your Son. We thank you, Father, for gracing us out, 
and treating us in a manner that we don't deserve. We all have no merit with you, Father. We're, we're all condemned before you who are holy, and we know that we only stand before you because of your Son and who he is and his merits and what he did for us at the cross. And we thank you, Father, for his death and resurrection on our behalf and also the Holy Spirit appropriating all that your Son accomplished for us through his death and resurrection and session at your right hand. And help us in this ministry and Christians all around the world to appropriate by faith what your word says and in the, in the Spirit says in the Scriptures, that, that we're crucified, died, buried, raised, and seated with your Son so that we might have a spiritual self-esteem, a self-esteem that's based upon who and what you are and who and what your Son is in our relationship with him and not ourselves and our, 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 our anything particular, our human power or, or anything like that, and that we're totally... Uh, we're totally at your mercy, Father. We thank you for your mercy and your grace. And we also lift up our congregation that the people in this ministry, that you would show those who have fallen away that the, uh, that the word of God is where it's at and that it, it, you're, they're not going to, they're going to lose rewards for, for uh, forsaking the assembling of themselves and abandoning the plan of God. And we just pray, Father, for them. And we lift them up and we also pray, Father, for those who are sitting on the fence and not, are not uh, sold out for your son and doing your will and have not denied self and took, taken up their cross daily and that are involved with the things of the world and have other priorities and that uh, are cosmic. And so we just pray, Father, that, that you would convict them and that they would get back into your plan. And those who are in your plan that are persevering, that you would give them encouragement and show them that there's a light at the end of the tunnel and help them and encourage them. And we pray that you would uh, add to our number here and also uh, the number of other congregations throughout this country and the world. And we also, we pray, Father, this evening that you would give grace to the communicator, help him to minister to your people who are here in the chapel and those who, who might be listening on Paltalk and those who might be listening other parts of this country and the world on the Internet at a later date. We just pray that you would help them to concentrate through the Spirit, that they would be, have a humble heart, and that they would uh, be active listeners and, and not passive, and that would uh, pay attention to what the Spirit is saying and what the, the application is to their daily lives. And we just pray, Father, that you would help the communicator to deliver your full counsel to your people in a fashion that would bring glory to you and your Son, Jesus Christ, and again, serve your people here, and that they would be built up and edified. And uh, we pray, Father, for these things in our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, this evening we're going to wrap up our study of Romans 15, 24. And uh, we're going to see in this, uh, the second statement in Romans 15, 24, we see Paul revealing that he desires the assistance of the Roman believers for his trip to Spain and to enjoy their company while passing through Rome to Spain. It's going to be interesting that Paul, remember he's, remember, he's never met these people, okay? He's got reports about them. They have heard about Paul from... These people that we're going to study in Romans 16, verses 3 through 15. There's many people that Paul sends greetings to in Rome. He knew, like uh, Pris, uh, Prisca, or Priscilla and Aquila, or Priscilla and Aquila as some call them. But we see that those individuals that were mentioned in Romans uh, 16, verses 3 through 15, gave Paul reports about the Roman believers. So Paul's never met these guys. He's written this epistle to, ent- to introduce himself, to give his... His, uh, basically his doctrinal dissertation as to what he believes the go- his go- what his gospel is and what he taught the, ch- uh, the Gentiles throughout the Roman Empire. And we see that Paul has never met these individuals, yet 
he is it seems like he's bold and asking for assistance because when he arrives there he's saying I want to be helped on my way by you and uh, to Spain so basically we're going to see here in this passage that he's going to solicit their help he wants financial uh, he wants material aid even traveling companions if necessary as we'll see to take him on uh, to send him on his way to Spain and we're going to see that Paul expected hospitality Christian hospitality from the Roman believers. In fact, he doesn't have to explain it to them. Basically, it was something that was a given in the churches throughout the the Gentile churches throughout the Roman Empire that Paul taught and all the apostles. Uh, In fact, this was a Jewish thing. This is what the Old Testament saints did, like Abraham and even his nephew Lot, as cosmic as he was. He entertained angels, as we saw in Genesis 19, uh, Abraham entertained the Lord and two angels, elect angels. We saw that in, 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 in uh, Genesis 18. So Christian hospitality actually goes back to the four uh, the, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So he was expected, this was something he expected from them. Uh, they were, in, in our day and age, and especially in America, Christian hospitality is, is becoming, unfortunately, something of a faint memory to some people. It's taught in the Bible, yet some people never ever open up their homes to anybody and claim the doctrine of privacy. And the doctrine of privacy is being used as something to, uh, to, uh, uh, to isolate people, Christians to isolate themselves from doing, fulfilling their Christian responsibility, which is to be hospitable to people, especially people who are traveling through, especially people who are itinerant um, evangelist like Gary Horton that comes into town. And we take up an offering for him because we're commanded to in the Bible in 3 John 6. And it's sad. I remember Gary telling me that, that you know, we're one of the food churches. In fact, he's, we're the only one who reads that passage and takes up an offering for the guy. Now, to me, that's, that's terrible. What is going on? But, you know, because we're very self-centered in America. The Christian church is very self-centered and very... Uh, uh, Look at what we do. We're sitting in front of computers. We sit in front of the TV. We become depersonalized. We don't. It's infected the Christian church so much so that Christians don't know what Christian hospitality is. They never open up their home. They're afraid of bringing somebody into their home. Yeah, sure, your privacy is going to be disrupted. But so what? This is what God expects us to do. And we're gonna. I'm gonna read you a quote from Bob Deffenbaugh from Dallas Theological Seminary. He's a great pastor. And you can get his, uh, his uh, writings on, uh, at Bible.org. I'm going to read a, a quote from him this evening about Christian hospitality. And so we've studied it in, in, in Romans 12, 13. Christian hospitality. We would, uh, Paul said, I want you to continue uh, being hospitable to strangers. So this is something, this is something that was very important in the first century church. Christianity was growing. Evangelism, pastors, they all were totally dependent upon Christian Grace, gracious hospitality. That was something that was expected in all the churches. So we see Paul saying, I want you to help me on the right way. It's not like, now today, if a pastor said, hey, I need to be, or evangelist said that today, in some churches in America, they would be offended. (laughs) You know, you're going to ask us for money? We don't even know you. So what? I'm teaching the gospel. You heard my gospel message. You should be taking care of me. It's just it's totally crazy what's going on in America in the churches. And we're the wealth, one of the wealthiest churches of all. In fact, we're the wealthiest church of all time, the church in America. And yet, unfortunately, we have a lot of cheap people in the Christian church these days. Look at Romans 15, 14. You can't be cheap and hospitable. You're either one or the other. Look at Romans 15, 14. 
And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, he says, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. But I have written very boldly to you on some points, so as to remind you again, because of the grace that was given me from God, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God, so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, in Christ Jesus, on the basis of my servanthood for Christ Jesus, as we saw, I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God, which are mentioned in verse 16. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. That's what that song was really basically all about. That I just sang. Resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. Now he explains what he means by word and deed. In the power of signs and wonders... And the power of the Spirit, it's all instrumental by, the, by means of power, uh, uh, the power of signs and wonders, by means of the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem, where he got his commission by the Lord to go to the Gentiles, and round about as far as Illyricum, the northern province, uh, the northernmost province of the Roman Empire in the first century, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. So he fulfilled the task of, of proclaiming the gospel in those regions, from Jerusalem to Illyricum. That means he church planted. It doesn't mean he taught in every location in those areas. He church planted, and the churches that he established then would evangelize their particular regions, as I, as I brought out in detail in the last couple of weeks. So that's very important, because that tells you that Paul is ready to enter a new phase in his ministry, in his life. Then he says in verse 20, And thus I aspire to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named or known, <clears throat> so that I would not build on another man's foundation. But as it is written, they who had no news of him shall see, and they who have not heard shall understand. Speaking of the Gentiles, accepting Christ by faith. It's the two statements, he's speaking rhetorically. So both statements are speaking of the same thing. Faith alone and Christ alone. They'll hear the gospel and they'll respond. And that is being fulfilled right now in our day and age. In fact, you and I, as I've been bringing out, are a fulfillment of that. Then he says in verse 22, for this reason, for this reason what? I've been proclaiming the gospel from Jerusalem to Illyricum the last two decades. I have often been prevented from coming to you. But now, at this particular time, my circumstances, with no further place for me in these regions, that doesn't mean he couldn't teach anymore. It means that he's church planted in these areas and there's no more, there's nothing else to do in, this, in these regions. I need to move on. So he says, but now, verse 23, with no further place for me in these regions... And since I have had for many years a longing to come to you whenever I go to Spain, for I hope, or as we saw at El Piso, it means I confidently expect to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you when I first enjoyed your company for a while. So right there, that last statement in verse 24, and to be helped on my way there by you when I have first enjoyed your company for a while, presents two additional reasons for Paul wanting to visit the Romans on his projected trip to Spain. That's his ultimate destination. And what are those two reasons? One, he wanted to have fellowship with them. He heard a lot about them, as we've mentioned. And now he wants to face, see them face to face. It's going to be a glorious moment. He's really looking forward 
to having fellowship. And remember, I laugh at somebody. I was, I was listening to somebody talk, talk to me about they like that fellowship. And I hear a lot of Christians say this, but they're not educated on fellowship. When Paul says, I want to have fellowship with you Roman believers, a lot of times Christians think it, fellowship is sitting around and having dinner with each other. Fellowship is deeper than that. Fellowship, as we've seen, is based upon a rela- common relationship with Jesus Christ that Christians have. It's also a partnership where you, you are having fellowship when you give to this ministry, when you pray for this ministry, when you serve in this ministry, or any other Christian ministry, that's a part of Christian fellowship. How do I know that? Because the words connected to Christian fellowship in the Greek New Testament are all speaking to these concepts. Relationship, partnership, stewardship, and companionship. Another aspect of Christian fellowship, which Paul is probably emphasizing here, is the companionship aspect. Speaking to one another, communicating to one another, getting to know one another, and listening to each other. And that was a part of Christian fellowship. Paul was looking forward to that. And also, stewardship. Paul's talking about Christian stewardship right here, to be helped on my way by you. That's fellowship too. That's the stewardship aspect of Christian fellowship. What do I mean by that? You have stewardship of your time. God's given you a certain amount of time. You have a spiritual gift. You have a responsibility to use your spiritual gift. That's another expression of Christian fellowship. You also have uh, not only time, talent, your spiritual gift, but also your finances. When you give, like the Philippians did to Paul, that's that's a part of Christian fellowship. Giving is. And so we see that, that time, talent, treasure, and your truth. You have truth that's been given to you. Do you share that truth with other believers? It talks about in Hebrews 5, at the end of that chapter, about um, that you should be teachers by now. He re- the writer rebukes the, his re- Jewish Christian readers. They couldn't even teach one another. They were so de- apostate. So Christian fellowship is just deeper than sitting and having a potluck meal. But a lot of, most Christians don't know that because they don't know their Bible. They're not being taught from the Greek New Testament. So how can you have fellowship when you don't know your Bible? So here's Paul talking about Christian fellowship here, companionship, stewardship aspect, partnership aspect, by helping Paul on his ministry, uh, his his evangelistic trip to Spain, they would be being partners with Paul because they were providing for him. That's Christian fellowship, people. It's not just sitting in a room having, you know, chicken, uh, you know, Kentucky fried chicken or whatever. It's deeper than that. This is what Paul's talking about. Now, you you didn't know that by just reading your English Bibles, did you? But this is the things that needs to be brought up by the pastor, and that's what I'm trying to do. So he's right here, he says, to be helped on my way there by you when I first enjoyed your company for a while. That's two reasons in there, in that statement. Two more reasons that Paul gives for wanting to visit the Roman believers. Fellowship with them and receiving assistance from them for this particular trip. So he is expecting it, people. He's expecting it. In fact, as I'm going to show you in a moment, in the original, it's talking about, it's a third-class condition, state, third-class conditional statement here. It talks about his certain, the certainty that they're going to help him. He expects it. It wasn't something that he had to beg and plead for. They knew about it. All the churches knew about it. They didn't have to be, they, they, they were all taught this. And it goes right back to the Jewish patriarchs of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who were very hospitable people. They didn't lock their homes to people, to Christians. They opened their homes. They were compassionate to other Christians. 
And some Christians don't get that. They like to sit there and they, I like, uh, they like to take the Bob theme pass. You know, Bob was, theme was teaching about, per, you know, privacy. And the, the Bible does teach privacy. But they take it, the tapers take it so far that they take it to the point where they don't associate with other Christians. Which is, her, which is misapplying the whole thing. So Christians here, he's saying, I, I expect you to help me on my way. I expect to receive assistance. He's teaching the word of God. He would, you know, Paul, when Paul, he, he, when he talks about Phoebe in chapter 16, he's telling the Romans, when she delivers this epistle, you treat her with respect and honor. And Paul and the apostles, anybody who taught truth, they were treated with the utmost respect and honor. They honored them. Now, they didn't just say, oh, I respect. No, they honored the person when he came to town. A guy like Paul, he, they honored him. That should, you know, that's a good thermometer of where a church is at. Is there, how hospitable are they are? How they, how are they? If they're not hospitable, that means that they don't have the love of God percolating in their soul. And that's a sad thing. Now he says to be helped on my way there by you. Look at, it says in verse 24, whenever I go to Spain for I hope to see you in passing. And then he says, and to be helped on my way there by you. When I first enjoyed your company for a while. Now that phrase, to be helped on my way, is actually one word in the Greek. We have the, the aorist passive infinitive form of the verb propempo, which is used with Paul as its subject, and the Roman believers are its instrumentality. Now the word means to send somebody on their way. What does that mean? Well, it means to send somebody on their, own, on their way, in the sense, not just saying, oh, here... Here's the door. Don't let it hit you on the way out. No. When they sent somebody on their way, they took care of the person. And, and the word means here, propempo, to be helped on my way. It means assisting Paul in making his journey to Spain. How? By providing food, money, by arranging for companions if he needed it, and means of travel. So this is what he was expecting from them. He never met these people. Yet he was expecting it from them. He was expecting it from them. And this, is what the, this was the policy of the apostolic church in the first century. And it went, as I said before, it went back to the patriarchs of Israel. They practice hospitality. So this is one of the reasons why you go back to the original language. Because in the English, to help be helped on my way, that's pretty ambiguous. What does that mean? Well, it talks about assisting somebody and making his journey by providing food, money, arranging for uh, traveling companions and a means of travel. So this word, this word uh, is actually used quite a bit in the New Testament. And let me show you what I'm talking about. And, and by doing so, it's pretty cool because we're going to find out a little bit about the early, the early first century church and their hospitality and their gracious hospitality. Uh, look at, uh, go to the book of Acts. Go to Acts chapter 20. Right before Romans. Look at Acts. Now, in Acts chapter 20, verse 38, uh, this particular word is used, and it's, it's translated accompanied. Now, I want you to pick it up, though. If you look at Acts chapter 20, verse 17, let's pick it up in context and see what was going on here when Paul used the word, uh, when it was used here. It says in Acts chapter 20, 
Look at verse 17. From Miletus, he sent, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. Paul did. He's talking to pastors here. Now look what he says. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia, the Roman province of Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility, and look at this, and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly from house to house. The early church started teaching in houses. That big buildings like this, they went house to house. Verse 21, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, bound by the Spirit, the Spirit was guiding him to Jerusalem. I'm on my way to Jerusalem. No, and this is to deliver the gift he's talking about in verses 26, uh, 25 and 26 of Romans 15. The churches from Macedonia and Achaia have a gift and I'm delivering it to the poor Jerusalem saints. This is the thing he's talking about. And the Spirit was driving him to do that. He says, except verse 23, that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. Therefore... I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I Notice that, and he says that because he's a clear conscience. It's a great thing to have a clear conscience as a pastor, knowing you did everything you could for the people, giving them the full counsel of God. It's a great, that's one thing, peace of mind is a great thing. Look at verse 27. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Notice he's talking to pastors, not deacons. To shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among, and from among your own selves, their own, these own pastors will arise speaking perverse things, false doctrines, to draw away the disciples after them. What a shocking thing, but Paul knew that that was going to happen. Look at verse 31. Therefore be on the alert, remembering that day and night for a period of three years I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver, gold, or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. And everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, that he himself, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all, all these pastors. It was a big prayer meeting here. And they began to weep aloud. So this whole idea about pastors can't cry and they, they're not tough and they're weak because they weep. Well, I guess the toughest pastor of all time had no problem with crying in front of other pastors. And he began to weep aloud and aloud and embraced Paul and repeatedly kissed him. I wouldn't let a pastor kiss me now. We're a little bit different now. That was Middle East. Look at verse 38, though. And grieving, especially over the word which he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And now here's the word propempo. And they were accompanying him to the ship. Look at verse uh, Acts chapter 21. 
Look at verse 5. When our, day, when our days, he says in Acts chapter 21, verse 5, and when our days there ended, we left and started on our journey, while they all, with wives and children, escorted us until we were out of the city. After kneeling down on the beach and praying, we said, farewell to one another. And when he says escorted us, that's the word propempo. Look at 1 Corinthians. Look at 1 Corinthians. After Romans, go to 1 Corinthians 16. I just want to show you what this word is used in the New Testament. Look at 1 Corinthians 16, 1. 1 Corinthians 16, 1. Now concerning the collection of the, for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, this is where the offerings started on Sundays. It was actually, they did it the first, Sunday, the first day of the week, Sunday, because they would take, actually Paul was taking an offering for the poor Jewish saints that Paul's talking about in Romans 15, verses 25 and 26. They were taking, the Gentile churches were taking up an offering for these poor saints in Jerusalem. So on the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save. That's what you should do for your church. Put aside and save a specific amount for your local assembly. And if you, you take care of your local assembly first, you take care, your offering, by the way, that's done on Sunday, it goes to the pastor primarily. And we do the upkeep of the church. But the pastor, remember, he sows spiritual things among you. He has the right to reap material things. First Corinthians chapter 9, he's, he, he, those who proclaim the gospel are to get their living from the gospel. So that's, a, that's the responsibility of the church. So look at verse 2. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper, so that no collections be made when I come. When I arrive, whomever, whoever, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it is fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. But I will come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I am going through Macedonia. And perhaps I will stay with you, the Corinthians, and even spend the winter. And he did. He wrote Romans from Corinth. So that you may send me on my way wherever I go. What does that mean? Propempo? It means to send somebody away by providing Food, money, traveling companions if necessary, and a means of travel. So you weren't sending the poor son of a gun away empty-handed. You were helping him. I know of a, I'll tell you right now, I know of a pastor, and poor, I'll tell you, woe to him on this one, but I know of a pastor who, he, this man he ordained, and he, when the guy went and got a ministry somewhere, he never ever took up an offering for the poor, the kid, the kid who he's sending away, who was going away to, to start a ministry. This pastor, because he had a rivalry, he was uh, jealous of this guy, so he never took up an offering for this guy. What a terrible, what a terrible thing to do. Other people in the church actually got together and put some money together to help the poor guy, the young guy out of there. And, uh, but the pastor wouldn't take up an offering for the son of a gun. He doesn't know what Christian hospitality is all about, that pastor. And, and look at, it says in, in verse 6 again, And perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may send me on my way wherever I go. Look at Titus chapter 3. Look at Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3 verse 12. This word propempo is, is used in this passage, uh, Titus 3.13. Titus chapter 3, verse 12. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, Titus, make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis. For I decided to spend the winter here. 
diligently helped Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way, helped them on their way so that nothing is lacking for them. Notice food, money, means of travel, traveling companions, help them on their way. That's what he's talking about there. He's saying, I want you to help these guys. So that's how the word is used, this word propempo, that we see in Romans chapter 15, uh, verse uh, 24. So we have uh, the word, if you can go back to Romans chapter uh, 15, look at verse 24 again. Romans 15, 24. He says in Romans 15, 24, Whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing... And then he says, and to be helped on my way there by you. So we see that this word, to, uh, the phrase, to be helped on my way, is the aorist passive infinitive form of the verb propempo, which is used with Paul as its subject and the Roman believers as its instrumentality. The word means to send on one's way in the sense of the Roman believers assisting Paul and making his journey to Spain, uh, uh, making his journey to Spain by providing food for him, money, by arranging for companions and means to travel. And this word implies Christian hospitality, which in Romans 12, 13, Paul commanded the Roman believers to continue practicing. It says, my translation on the board of that verse, all of you continue to make it your habit to contribute to the saints' needs. All of you continue to make it your habit to eagerly seek out opportunities to practice hospitality. Now, this, I always laugh when people say, you got to tell me your needs. Well, you've got to be kidding me. That's not what the Bible says. The Philippians in chapter 4, they sought out what Paul's needs were. Paul wasn't saying, by the way, I need this, 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 and this, and send a letter. But by the way, no, that was the responsibility of other Christians to look out for each other. You're to eagerly seek out opportunities to practice hospitality. You don't need a written invitation to go help somebody. You should find out what he needs or her, what she needs. That's what you should do. A lot of Christians do that in our ministry, and a lot do not. A lot do not know this. They're not listening to the Word of God. It says right there, all of you continue to make it your habit to eagerly seek out opportunities to practice hospitality, looking for it, looking to seek. How many Christians are doing that today? Looking to seek out to help somebody. <laughs> not a lot of Christians are all about them is what the problem is. Hey, let me, let me tell you uh, what this particular word hospitality is. It's the word philo, philox onia. Philox onia is a compound word that literally means a friend of strangers. That's what this word hospitality is talking about. It thus it refers to someone who entertains strangers and demonstrates hospitality towards them. Some Christians don't demonstrate hospitality to people they know, Christians they know. Forget about strangers. God forbid they open up their home to a stranger. In fact, I'll tell you another thing. Pastors are to be like that. They're to be hospitable. And what, like when, uh, when Pastor Meisinger came into town, I didn't want anybody to get this. I, wanted, I took this guy. And I took him in for a week. I never, I'll never let the guy pay, pay anything for a dinner. I never let him touch anything. And I'm not bragging. I'm just telling you this is what you should do. Especially with a guy who's a pastor teacher or a man of God who teaches the word of God, that's how you honor the guy. You don't sit there. I remember Bob McLaughlin used to do that with Bob Thiem. Bob Thiem would come into town, his pastor, who he got ordained from, and Bob Thiem would be in town, and Bob would roll out the red carpet for this guy. It was his pastor. He showed him honor. He didn't give him lip service. He showed his honor. He, t- he got into his pocket and spent some money on the guy. 
I saw him do it. That's one of the great things about Bob was he was very, very gracious to people. And he did that with his own pastor. See, that's what, you know, that's how you honor somebody. It's not, oh, give, give him lip service. We're to love in deed and truth, not in word and tongue. First John three sixteen and 17. So this word, hospitality in the original, actually means a friend of strangers. In the first century, people, there was a great need in the church to provide shelter and food to visitors who had been uprooted from their homes because of persecution. That's what happened to the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem that are getting this gift from the churches of Macedonia and Achaia. In the Roman Empire, inns were many times, places of ill repute and travelers, whenever possible, stayed with friends. Thus, the New Testament emphasizes hospitality to strangers. Hebrews 13.2 says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Why? For by this, some have entertained angels without knowing it. Also, 1 Peter 4.9, I love this passage. Be hospitable to one another. And then he says this, without complaint. Some people, they, they, they do something for somebody and they complain about it later to somebody else. Or their husband or their wife. Oh, gosh. Well, that, that's not Christian hospitality. You need to do it without complaint. Like it was such a big burden to help somebody. That's your responsibility as a Christian, to be hospitable to each other and to strangers, other Christians that are coming through town. So we see that in the Old Testament, as I mentioned before, Abraham and his nephew Lot were examples of those who earnestly sought to demonstrate hospitality to strangers. Genesis 18, verses 2 through 8, and also with Lot in Genesis 19, 1 through 3. Let me read you a quote. I don't have it for the people, uh, uh, I don't have it in my notes, but I, I was just, I, I was going through my other notes, the notes, the, the, the big notes that I'm going to post on the website. Of, it's an exhaustive detail, my study of this verse. And uh, I, I have this quote from Bob Deffenbach. Now, it's a little bit long, but listen to what he has to say. It's a little bit long, but that's all right. You can learn a lot from this guy. Listen to what he has to say, and I'm quoting from him. His name's Bob Deffenbach. He, is the, uh, he, he's a, he graduated from uh, Dallas Theological Seminary. He's a pastor, and he's commenting on that statement in Romans 12, 13 about be, the Romans being hospitable. He makes the following quote, quote, and I write, Paul calls for two particular expressions of love for the brethren in, in, in Romans 12, 13. Both expressions, listen to what he says, invade the privacy of the Christian. A privacy, privacy highly valued in a self-centered, self-indulgent society. And we are people. These two expressions of brotherly love involve first the wallet and second the home. Paul exhorts Christians to contribute to the needs of the saints and to aggressively practice hospitality. Let us consider both of these expressions of brotherly love. Times of political tension and religious persecution take a heavy toll on Christians. But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have a better possession and an abiding one. He's quoting from Hebrews 10, 32-34. But Deffenbach goes on to say, the consequences for faithfulness to Christ may include the loss of employment, the loss of property, often the loss of friends and family who may abandon, deny, or even betray us. Persecuted saints often need financial and material assistance to generously share with others 
in these times is to give up one's assets and resources at a time when they may appear to be most needed. Identifying with fellow believers who are being persecuted may also bring about persecution for us. Sharing with those in need at such times may seem to be too big a risk. For those who have families to support, the risk factor is much greater. Taking such risk requires faith, hope, and love. Paul teaches that genuine brotherly love requires just such sacrifices and risk-taking. Hospitality is the other area of ministry Paul mentions. In those days, there was no Motel 6 where Christians could stay away when, when away from home. They were dependent upon the hospitality of those who shared a like precious faith, who would open their homes to those believers they knew, as well as those they did not know. The cost for such ministry, he says, can be high, especially in times of tribulation. First, because opening our homes is an invasion of our privacy, which we hold as a very high priority. When violence increases and the dangers are great, we want burglars, burglar bars, deadbolts, Doberman pinches, alarm systems, and no strangers. But such times of violence and danger make the needs of the traveler even more intense. Little wonder that both Abraham and Lot were so eager to invite the angels unaware into the hospitality and safety of their homes. I believe, he says, Christians have, in many instances, rightly perceived the threat to their families coming from our heathen culture. We are not far behind Sodom and Gomorrah, if indeed we are behind it all. But there is a danger that our homes can become fortresses from which we bar not only our enemies, but strangers who profess to know Christ. Practicing hospitality, Deffenbaugh says, is vital to practicing our love for the brethren. When danger increases, along with the risk factor, love for the brethren becomes even an even greater matter of urgency. When the risk increases, our love becomes an even greater matter of faith and hope. Even when there was no great threat, as there was in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, there are still reasons why Christians hole up in their homes, refusing to show hospitality by inviting others into their homes. It's an invasion of our privacy, as suggested, but it also exposes us as we really are, especially any hypocrisy we sustain by keeping others at arm's length. It's an invasion into the intimacy of the home, an intimacy which we share but would rather not. It allows us to look closer at the needs of the stranger so that we may discover other needs and thus other obligations to which we must respond. Paul's exhortation is clear. Hospitality is is our obligation. It is one of the manifestations of the Christian's love for the brethren. I'll finish the quote there. That's pretty much it. That was from Bob Defagog, a, a, a pastor who was ordained, who was a professor, I think, at Dallas Theological Seminary still. But there it is. That's, that's, what a great quote that is. And In our day and age, you know, does it say in the, Jesus said in the end times, the love for one another will grow cold? So much so that Christians can't, won't, are so afraid of... Uh, opening their homes to even Christians that they know or people that they know, they won't open up their homes. Let somebody else do that. And I, there are some people in our ministry who do that and they know who they are. They don't, they'll get their reward from God. They open up their homes to, to people. I'll tell you what, Barbara and Don McKinney, uh, when I was, when I, you know, there are people, I've been here for almost 10 years, people have never opened up their home to me. And they were, they were six, not even six months in the ministry and they were inviting me into their home. And I needed that. 
being a single guy away from home. I mean, give me a break. And you're a pastor. You got a bullseye on your back. If anybody needed love and attention and a hug and some pork loin, it was me. And the you know and uh, and Titus and Jody do that, and Bill and Jeannie Albers have done that, and other people people have done that. But there are other people I don't even know them, which is pretty sad. And, and I'm the pastor of the church, and I'm somebody you know who feeds you the word of God. But that's the way some people are, and you just have to keep praying for them that they get it at some point, and uh, they you know that God uh, convicts them of it, and then they start making changes in their life and stop putting this. You know, a lot of times you get hurt, you get burned when you expose yourself, people. Didn't we just talk about that in the ministry with Swindoll at the beginning? When you, when you give yourself to people, there is a chance that people will betray you and hurt you and abandon you. But did Jesus stop? Did it happen to Jesus? Did he stop loving people? No, he never, he never stopped loving people, even though he was betrayed and abandoned by all his disciples who, who professed that they loved him. And same with Paul and all the other apostles. They kept forging on. They didn't stop loving. They didn't. They weren't. They weren't uh, afraid to be vulnerable. See, that's what it takes to be with Christian hospitality: is you make yourself vulnerable. And in fact, if you serve the body of Christ, you're going to make yourself vulnerable. And by doing that, if you serve, but if you want to put yourself in a cocoon and you want to protect yourself in the world, you can go ahead and do that. But you only hurt yourself. You're actually cheating yourself out of some great Christian fellowship. Now look at Romans 15, 24. Let's go back there, if you're not there already. <clears throat> Paul says in Romans 15, 24, he says, whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing, and then he says, and to be helped on my way there by you. By you indicates that the Roman believers, as a corporate unit, are the ultimate agency which Paul expects to be assisted by and sent on his way for his missionary trip to Spain. When the, the word when, when it says, uh, to be helped on my way there by you, when I first enjoyed your company for a while, the word when is the conditional particle uh, on, and it's employed with the subjunctive mood of the word and, and beep la me. And that's translated, I have enjoyed your company. And together, the subjunctive mood of this word and this conditional particle uh, on, it forms a prothesis of a third class conditional statement. And what does it mean? What does that mean, Bill? I'll tell you what it means. It emphasizes the cer certain fulfillment of Paul being assisted on his journey to Spain if he first enjoys the company of the Roman believers. The prothesis is this. When I have first enjoyed your company for a while, the apothesis, where we, inf we infer something from the prothesis, the premise, is this. To be helped on my way, thereby you. So what Paul's saying with the third class condition is this. If I first enjoyed your company for a while then I will, be, I, I will be helped on my way to Spain by you. So this is emphasizing that phrase, when I first enjoyed your company for a while, it is emphasizing with Paul's readers in Rome that he values their fellowship and that his trip to Spain can wait until he first has enjoyed their company for a while. It emphasizes that fellowship with Ro the Roman believers is Paul's first priority before going to Spain. And it's a polite way to express his confidence that the Roman Christians will assist him on his journey to Spain. When he says, I have first enjoyed your company, uh, we have the word protos, which is translated first. And then, as I mentioned earlier, we have the aorist passive subjunctive form of the verb, and biplami, and that's translated, I have enjoyed. And with it, as we have the genitive uh, form of the personal pronoun, C, which is translated in your Bibles, 
your company. Now, this word, ambiplomy, is used in a figurative sense of enjoying something. And in context, this would be the company of the Roman believers, and it speaks of Paul having his fill of fellowship with the Roman believers. It means getting the most time, most of his time with the Roman believers, enjoying their company. The early church loved each other. They loved to hang out with each other. Somebody, somebody was telling me in this church, when was the last time we had a, a get-together and had a dinner and stuff? It's been a long time. But I'm, not, I'm, I'm the one who suggested the last one, but I'm not going to do it anymore. Let's, people should want to get together and do it themselves. I don't have to sit there and knock on the door and say, okay, we need to do something. People should just take the initiative and do it. What, do you need a written edict from the pastor to do something? Yeah, let's have a get-together. Why don't we have a barbecue? Why don't we have a cookout? Maybe, maybe we're too cold as a church. I don't know. Some people, you know, you guys in front of me, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir. You guys, I don't have any problem with you guys. But there's other people in this ministry. It's like, let's go on my way. I never have anything to do with the rest of the body of Christ. Are you kidding me? Jesus wept. <laughs> Jesus wept, that sign that Jody put out there. He's weeping over some people in our church. Let's get together more often. Oh, I'm too busy. Well, you can't make time for the body of Christ. There's something wrong with you. Too busy for what? What are you doing that's so important? What, are you going to go, to go to the bar and hang out and have a couple of beers and get Taiwan on with the heathen? you got to enjoy company with the body of Christ. You should want to. There's something wrong with you if you don't want to hang out with the body of Christ. <clears throat> I just want to hang out with my own family. Well, that's all right, great. See you later. <laughs> that's a lot of people like that in this ministry. And I hope they're listening to this. And I hope I stir up another storm with that, these comments. Because that's the Spirit speaking, people. Take it up with him. You can shoot me. They'll bring somebody else and you'd shoot him too. Some people like to do that. Now this protos, protos means first, and it's used to denote priority and time indicating that Paul's first priority before going to Rome is fellowship with the Roman believers before they assist him in his pro- proposed trip to Spain. For a while is a prepositional phrase again. Remember in the Greek New Testament, Greek-speaking individuals, they would pile prepositional phrase on top of each other. We would call it a run-on sentence, but it makes perfectly good Greek. Well, this prepositional phrase, apo, which is translated for, and then a while is the the genitive form of the noun, miros. Now, this prepositional phrase is used adverbially. That that happens many times with prepositional phrases, but we could translate it temporarily. Since it pertains to a relatively short period of time, emphasizing the temporary nature of Paul visiting the Roman believers. So he's saying to them, I'm going to temporarily visit you. It's not going to be a long time, but I want to have my fellowship with you, and I want to be filled to the brim. I want to have a great time with you guys. I'm going to give you the word of God, as he said in Romans 1, and I'm I'm going to be built up by your faith, and I'll build up your faith. You build up mine, I'll build up yours. Reciprocation, another aspect of Christian love which I've taught on since I got here in Iowa. So, again, when he says for a while, that emphasizes the temporary nature <clears throat> excuse me, of Paul's visiting the Roman believers. Even though this visit to Rome will be temporary, it will still afford time to proclaim the gospel in Rome to the Roman believers and the unsaved in Rome and for him to enjoy fellowship with the Roman church. Now, let me give you my translation of verses 23 and 24 on the board, and I just want to make two points And we'll close about verse 24 that we studied, finished off this evening. Look at it says, my translation on the board of Romans 15, 23, and 24. However, now, because at the present time, 
I no longer possess an opportunity in these regions, and in addition, because I possess a passionate desire for a period of many years to enter into the company of each and every one of you, I, in fact, am absolutely certain and confidently expect to see each and every one of you for myself while passing through Rome, whenever I will be permitted by the Spirit to travel to Spain, and in addition, to be helped on my journey there by all of you as a corporate unit, when I have first temporarily enjoyed your company for a while. Now, to summarize our findings of Romans 15.24, we see that Paul wrote that he confidently expects to visit his readers in Rome while passing through whenever he is permitted by the Holy Spirit to travel to Spain. Then he finishes the verse off by presenting two additional reasons he wanted to visit the Romans on his projected trip to Spain, namely to have fellowship with them and to receive assistance from them for this trip. Well, we ran out of time. We'll pick this up tomorrow. So with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, let us pray. Father, we thank you for this time to study your word. We pray that the Holy Spirit would challenge us with the things that we've heard, that we would be objective and have humility and not emote, and that we'd seriously consider what the Spirit said to the, through the pastor here this evening to this congregation or all those who, who care to listen, and that they would take it to heart and be encouraged if they're doing the right thing, and if they're not, that they would make the necessary changes so that they can bring glory to you, and we could also bring glory as a, to God as a church. And we would not have our Lord weeping over the lack of love. So, Father, we pray for these things in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ's name. Amen.